Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Focused on Forward. So today's show is going to be a little bit different than most shows. Usually I bring in a guest and we talk about uh, who they are, what they are, why they're here. But today's episode, we're going to do this a little bit differently. Sam has chosen to remain anonymous and, and we're absolutely fine with that. But we are going to talk about things that Sam has struggled with in his life. Now, whether that struggles with his own approach to mental health and his own mental health and those matters and how he's approached them, but also an addiction that he had to face, overcome, and how he's moved forward in his life with a struggle with alcohol addiction. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about those things. We'll focus on those things. But like always, we're always interested in how our guests become focused on forward. And so we're anxious to hear how Sam has done that with his life and his story. So Sam, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tim. Excellent. All right. So Sam, if you're whenever you're comfortable, if you would start us off with your story and, and kind of walk us through some of the challenges and things that you've had to overcome. For sure. Uh, my name's Sam and normally I'd finish that with I'm an alcoholic as a little bit of a presage to what's going on. Uh, I was raised in a very rural part of the country by religious fundamentalist parents. I was part of a small religion called Christian science, which doesn't believe in basically any technology or any medicine invented after the 1870s. And that'll be important later. So part of that is the trauma of growing up in an isolated religious sect in a small town. And the other part of my childhood that really matters is that I am uh, pretty smart. My younger sister skipped a grade in elementary school And I was recently talking with my mom about this and she said, your sister was definitely smart enough to go from first grade directly to third grade. There was nothing we could do with you because you were done with high school by the time you were done with elementary school. And that also leads to a sense of alienation. And it it wasn't, it wasn't a good look on me. I was a bully. I was angry and I did not have good tools for managing who I was. So it made perfect sense that there was no real recourse. And we were not wealthy. We weren't really middle class. We were upper lower class, as it were, in that 99% of the time we were able to put food on the table. And although that required both my parents working two, sometimes three jobs, it pretty much always worked. And we went on road trips and Things were good. My, uh, it's, it's important to note that my parents don't drink. They have had drinks. I've seen them have drinks, but in their life, they've probably put away about a dozen beers a piece. And there was no drugs. There was no medicine in the house, nothing like that. So the next bit of the story that matters is uh, 
things started looking up right before the financial crisis in 2000, and I was sent away to boarding school. Now, I kind of deserved that. I was, a, I was a bit of a pill, and I went to a religious boarding school in St. Louis. While I was there, I contracted an eye infection, and this type of eye infection is a pretty traumatizing thing. If you've ever had a, a wound you know, on your skin, and I've had, a, I've had a few since then, where it's just leaking and it's, it's horrible and it's not healing and there's nothing you can do with it and it hurts. And then imagine it's on your eye, on the cornea of your eye. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was 14, I was a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this boarding school, it's the first time I actually had enough food. I put on that freshman 15 when I was a freshman in high school. I went from like 150 to 175. So uh, my dad came out and took care of me. The market crashed. I had to leave. But uh, I was told I'd never be able to see out that eye again unless I got a zombie cornea, which is kind of a cool thing. And that's that's true to this day that I haven't had it replaced because it's a, it's an effort, but that really shook me to my core because I realized that my religion of origin, despite the fact that I had had some strong spiritual moments in my life and would continue to after that was breeding resentment inside of me that I did not trust my parents to put me away, to, to, to put me away someplace. And sure, I got a great education there for the year I was there, but I couldn't, I couldn't justify to myself still maintaining those connections. So things were tough for a while. The next important thing is that I was working on a house. My father, he built all the houses that they've lived in because that's, you know, he's uh, he's someone who works hard, not smart, but he works damned hard. And this was the second sure. house he built and I was helping him in high school. And as you can imagine, a 15, 16, 17-year-old boy uh, and his father, who is stubborn, uh, we had conflict. We had a lot of conflict. There were a lot of times when I would walk home from the job site. And he paid me all right, but it wasn't like, you know, safety was of a tertiary concern to getting the job done. And It had to be done his way, not the right way. There was a lot of complications and it all came to a head at a moment where I was writing a paper for school and my dad turned his music up really loud across the house. And I I went over and said, I turned my music up higher and he shut down the breaker to my half of the house. And that this is, long ago and that meant that I lost several hours with work and this is a paper because I'm a smart person uh I procrastinate like nobody's business right waited for the last second sure Mm -hmm. it was doing like seven hours and uh so I went downstairs and I, I grabbed a uh the nastiest looking knife it wasn't the most um it wasn't the most effective knife but it was a bread knife and I grabbed it and I told him that if you ever did anything like that again, then um, I can't take responsibility for my actions. And I immediately realized I screwed up. I, uh, sure. yeah. So I walked to town, it was five miles and the cops picked me up. Um, 
I remember, and this is this is the dark part. This is apparently the most traumatizing part of this story. I remember sitting in the back of a cop car. It's an SUV. I've got my my uh, wrists handcuffed behind me, and uh, the cop is in front of me. And those of you who've been in the back of a, a cop car, you know that mesh. It's like a chain link, but you can just barely get a finger through it. But I was still right. a skinny kid because I'd grown up a little. And I, I was thinking I could totally reach a toe through and pull the trigger on the M16 that's right behind his seat and maybe like shoot it off next to his head. And I didn't do that. I mean, I, I couldn't have been able to rack an M16 with one toe anyway, but uh, as I learned later, but yeah, I was a crazy person. So I spent the next week in juvie, and fortunately, that was the week right before the AP exams. So I kind of failed those because I'm a procrastinator and I hadn't studied for them. Right. Uh, and I was homeless. I uh, I couldn't go home. I was I was court ordered to uh, not go home. So I was kind of living with my grandma, and I was kind of living on the streets. I was kind of living in my car, and I became a raft guide, which is a perfectly legitimate profession in my hometown. It's like being a barista or a sure yeah like a golf course worker it's a reasonable job for someone who has a high school education and that is when i started drinking now i'd experienced some drinking before but now i was an adjudicated felon and i had nothing whatsoever stopping me from like that moral mode i was a screw up and that was also the economy of raft guiding. You know, when you're uh, when you were late or you were too early, when you messed things up, you paid for your crimes in beer to your trip leader. And then I became a trip leader, and I was paid in beer. And sure. your tips, whoever got tipped the most, was paid in beer. And by about July, I uh, was told my my raft guide name was Bluey, and they said, "Bluey, you're too smart for this shit. You got to go to school." And uh, so I chose, uh, I applied to the three local schools in my state. I picked the hardest one. It is internationally renowned for being extremely difficult. I applied, I got in and I showed up and the first day I was like, hey, who's got a fake? Let's get some beer. And I managed to make my way through school only ending up in detox twice and contracting alcohol poisoning three or four times. Um, we made a wow. real hash of it. It took me five years, but that's normal for a really difficult school. And then I thought, okay, things are going to be calmed down now that I'm entering the workforce. And I, so I showed up at my first day of my, my job, my first job out of college. And I was, uh, I was finding bombs for a living. It's, it's a totally crazy story, but, um, we had taken over a hotel in a remote town and, we had taken over the hotel bar. And so I drank heavily through that job. I had drank in heavily when I was a raft guide. Eventually that job petered out, but I got a much, much better job after being, um, getting into a really dodgy situation in San Antonio. I was sexually assaulted by a stranger because I was blackout drunk on the street at two in the morning on like a Tuesday because it was happy hour. Wow. And I was in okay. a foreign town and I was finally getting a paycheck because it had been like two months since I'd gotten one. Uh, and I got my dream job. I was making really good 
money. After a year there, I got a $20,000 raise and like another $15,000 raise. And then I was sitting here like, there's, there's a moment and I've described it to people. And this is the moment where you come out of lower class and you move into like comfortable upper middle class. And the thing is, you don't worry about small things. It's really just the size of the thing you have to worry about. Like normal people, a buck here, a buck there. If you're poor, you're like, ooh, a dime here, a dime there. And when you're wealthy enough, like a thousand bucks here, a thousand bucks there, it doesn't add up. You, you can't do that a hundred times a year, but you can do that 20 times a year and it's no problem. Right. But I spend it all on booze. I have nothing to show for it. I still have the same car. I still have the same, I mean, I live a few blocks away, but I still rent. It's, uh, it's crazy. Um, I moved to Michigan. I fell into a deep depression in the winter there. And I started getting the inklings that I had a problem with drinking because the gal who I was living with her, uh, you know, we tried to make like a contract of like how I could move forward in this relationship because I was unemployed and unemployable. I was substitute teaching. I cussed out a room full of sixth graders. I was a wreck. And sure. Yeah. Her dad said, you know, no more than two drinks a day. And I'm like, what is this BS? That is inexplicable. I cannot imagine. Right. I, uh, I moved back to uh, my home state. I got a job and I started commuting on Tuesdays to a bar with some friends. And I kept trying to control my drinking. I kept trying to get a linear line where I would have one beer and I'd feel like I had one beer, three beers and I'd feel like I had three beers. And it never really lined up. And then one night I got a DUI and as I'm coming out of detox, the nurse, and uh, I'm not sure it was the nurse from the night before. If she was, then I had some real beer goggles. I think it was a different nurse though. But uh, she said, what reason do you have to drink again? And I said, well, I got some friends and they're in town for this hockey thing. And so we went up to the mountains and did the hockey thing. And this whole time I was trying to control my drinking and I realized how miserable I was trying to control it. So a week after that DUI, I had my last drink and I was a wreck. I started, uh, I had a moment of serendipity. I was talking to a friend who I'd only ever met online at that point and she said, well, maybe you should go to Al-Anon meetings. And I'm like, I don't know any alcoholics. And she said, you should go to an Al-Anon meeting. So I just looked up a AA meeting. And that's why I maintain anonymity here because of the principles of AA. I showed up at that meeting. And for some reason, I had a dollar in my pocket, uh, which if you find yourself wanting to go to an AA meeting, you know, they're self-supporting through their own contributions. So there's a basket passed and that, that funds all of AA is the, the past basket. For some reason, I had one single dollar in my pocket, which in 2017 doesn't buy anything. And I, the, it shared a parking lot with my work at the time. And it was at 5.30 PM. So I stayed a half hour late at work and I went to this meeting and I heard people who were telling my story as far as the insanity of their drinking. If, if someone finds themselves drinking when they don't want to, and if someone finds themselves unable to stop after they've started drinking, 
you know, in, um, oh gosh, what is that movie where they be, they go back to the frat house and it's got, um, gosh, not Ben Stiller. Anyway, there's a guy and he says, it feels so good when it tastes your lips. I forgot about that. And that was me. The thirst. Oh yeah. I know. Um, Oh goodness, it's got Will Ferrell in it. Um, yeah, it's it's Will Ferrell who says that. Yeah, yeah, Frank the Tank. Yeah, I can't remember yeah. the name of the movie, that but was, I can I can remember Frank the Tank. And yeah, that feeling. If you ever feel that way, there are so many resources available, and the big one for me that was difficult was actually having a spiritual awakening, because that's the key part of the AA program is recognizing that I am not God. Right. Recognizing a higher power in some form. Yeah. And I had been living like that for a long time. I went to this extremely prestigious school. I hadn't gone to church since I was 16. I had been left behind by my church and blinded literally by my church. And I had gotten this degree, which gave me a... (laughs) 10,000 mile view of the planet. I knew how every single thing worked that anyone had ever touched. I knew where it came from. I knew how it was made at some level. I was the aforementioned really smart person. And I believed that I was God. So I stopped. I stopped that. And I started living a really cool life up in a college town in in my state. Uh, yeah. I haven't lived before. I had a cool relationship that kind of was all of a sudden the healthiest relationship I've ever had, despite the fact that in retrospect, it, it had room to grow. And then I threw it all away for an extremely sexy girl I met in AA and that fell apart. Like, wow, that was catastrophic. It was absolutely <laughs> devastating. <laughs> Um, so I moved back to where it all kind of began, the capital of my, my home state, a few blocks from where I got my best drinking on when I was finding bombs. So I had my dream job, like literally a, a the epicenter. Yeah. And it's changed a lot, but, but I've changed more. Sure. And I was living in this basement apartment and I the winter was rolling in. It was November of 2019. And I found that I just moved away from my whole support group. Uh, it was like 45 minutes away. So it's just kind of out of, out of reach. And I was finding new support groups, but I, I couldn't get happy. I couldn't stop crying. And it, it was really related to the doom the existential dread of living in a world where like every single human eats a credit cards worth of plastic every week. And as part of my college degree, I studied a lot of global warming and climate change and Mm -hmm. watching as the predictions I put in place 20 years ago are worse now and working on and off again in the oil and gas sector. And it started to become just too much. And I, I couldn't smile. I couldn't get happy. And I, I fell into a bad depression. 
I ended up calling my sponsor. A sponsor is the person AA who you meet, um, you reach out, you find someone, and you find someone generally of the same gender who you want what they have. As they speak in a meeting, you hear something meaningful from them. And this person just happened to be next to me. And uh, he came down from the mountains. He lived like an hour and a half away through a crazy snowstorm. And he took me to the hospital just a few blocks away and, and sat down. And we talked and he said, I can't cry either. My mom's dying of cancer. He's younger than me. And his mom's dying of cancer. And I felt like such a wretch. I felt even worse, but I also recognized that I needed to be there for people. And that was a seed that was planted while I was in a mental hospital for a week, the week of uh, Thanksgiving, 2019. That the same things that I learned, and, and this is what it's like being in a mental hospital. They take away everything cool on your cult. So if you ever check yourself into a mental hospital, wear like, bring like three pairs of wool socks and, you know, comfy pants, jeans are probably better. And then like a hoodie with the string gun, because I had to ask my sister to bring that stuff to me on Thanksgiving day. But uh, the key components of AA are being of service to others and having a community mm -hmm. and having faith. And that it turned out to be the key components of getting over depression as well, as well as a antidepressant medicine, which I'm on and I'm grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I got out of that and then the pandemic happened and things got real crazy, but I have since then really moved on in some really cool directions in my life. And that's been such a cool growth to have. So typically, uh, Sam, throughout the course of these conversations, you know, I've already jumped in a couple different times and I've asked questions, um, but I found myself, you know, I'm just sitting here writing notes and, and listening to your story because it's that captivating. Mm -hmm. um, but I have to ask you, it sounds like to me that the point in time where you became focused on forward and moving forward in your life was shortly after your DUI. Now, yeah. is, is that accurate or is there something else that I'm missing here? Um, the way I used to describe my life to people was that every single day is getting a, is a little bit worse than the day before. I don't know where I pulled that from a book sometime, but uh, that's how I felt. And I honestly felt that way. I, the job I had when I got my DUI, I was still spending money. Like I was making a hundred thousand dollars a year and I was not making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Everything was so tough and everything was so trivial. And then that moment when I met that nurse and she said, what reason do you have to drink again? And I had to lie. I had to say, I don't really have a reason. That was a real turnaround. And that's like the first, uh, they call it in a, a moment of clarity. So that was, that was when I started focusing on sobriety and then I had to focus on aiming my life in the direction of my sobriety. So what are ways that you have taken since that time 
because you've had some other challenges since the point where you, where you took your last drink and you've moved forward in your life. What are things that you do on a daily basis to help continue to move forward despite the challenges that your addiction plays in your life? Well, that's a good one. Uh, the, there's a lot of strength in structure. Having something to do every single day is really important. I used to spend a lot of time at the gym before the pandemic and all sorts of stuff. I used to bike to work. Now what I do is I go to a 7 a.m. AA meeting almost every day of the week. Having that you have to get up and do it mentality is something that's been really important lately. Really important since I moved back to where I am now because the being a regular somewhere was like kind of what you wanted when you were going out to bars. You wanted to be someone who ever, wherever knows your name and you get that in an AA meeting to some extent. Sure. AA is also kind of like D and D in that you learn someone's first name, you learn exactly how they think and their neuroses. And then five years later, you're like, Oh, you have kids. I had no idea. Like, oh, I didn't know you were a doctor or a butcher or a candlestick maker. It's, it's this very strange relationship. And I appreciate that because that allows a different set of relationships. It allows me to have space to be who I need to be. But structure is really important as well. And it, there's flexibility there, but doing something, sticking to it, committing to it, and never questioning that commitment. That's, that's faith, right? Is Sure. So going back to when I used to find bombs, uh, <laughs> I didn't worry about stepping on a 2,000-pound bomb because if you do that and it goes off, you go home in an envelope. You either do or don't. What I worried about was stepping on the 40 millimeter grenades because those are designed to just rip your leg off and then you have to live with no leg. That's way worse than just being instantaneously evaporated. Sure. So I have to do this. And that is the freedom because it's like, I have to breathe. I have to drink water. I have to do PT for whatever physical ailments. So I have to go to meetings, otherwise I will fall apart. And I've, I've proven this. I've gone a week or two without, and I turn into a raving lunatic. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So you, you've, you've gone to the outside edges. You found your limitations. You know what works yeah. for you. All right. So let's talk about other things that you've done to help yourself. You said that you, you, know, you spent some time uh, in, in a mental hospital. You, you've gone to mm-hmm. the point of, of, of you know, now you take a... a a maintenance medicine to help you yeah. with that and deal with your depression and, and, uh, and things along those lines. I think that many times there's a misunderstanding in our, in our world and our, uh, you know, and a stigma around the fact that people use mental hospitals in a very healthy and useful way. Mm-hmm. Can you speak about that for a minute? And, and maybe some of the struggles that you had with going to there to, to get the help you needed? Absolutely. The mental hospital I went to had, I think, four wings that were important. Uh, So one of them was a detox, like a long-term detox. And I was really grateful for that because I'd go there for my AA meetings. Another one was for children. I didn't see that, but that's pretty tragic. You know, it's for 
kids who are unable to function. And then there is the, the low maintenance people like me. And then there's the hard cases, you know, people who are, you know, on high power medicine in straight jackets, padded walls. Sure. So I was just in the, uh, you know, it was, it was just a quiet place. Now the stigma is of course there because no one wants to admit that they've had a moment of weakness in their life or even recognize right. that mental illness is weakness. And in reality, that's not the case at all. It's not that learning the boundaries of myself has made me weaker. It's that it's made me stronger. I knew exactly how far I can be pushed before I break down and have to be rebuilt. There's another element of that that kind of cheeses me. And it's that people say that, you know, as a platitude that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's not true either. There's things that'll break you and you never get better. You know, you, when you break something and it heals wrong, or, or when you have like, um, damage, I have, I have nerve damage in my neck and it, it's, it doesn't get better. It's just, it just gets worse over time. And the only thing I can do is do maintenance on it. And it, it does. And then with my eye, there's just things that I'm unable to do. And I am weaker for it physically, but I know my boundaries now. So it's not, it's not a, a cosmopolitan experience. I'm sure that some people can make it so. And, and this is something in, in my recovery because I don't have a rehab as part of my recovery. And there's a lot of people who do very expensive, very fancy mm -hmm. rehab or really you know, halfway houses. There's, there's so many resources available. And I'm very fortunate that that wasn't part of my story because it's, it's tough. But the asking for help gives you... I mean, it's, it's the first thing towards breaking down your self-will and your self-will, if it has not delivered you what you need out of life, then your self-will is no longer serving you. And the only thing you can do is ask for help. What, no matter what form that help takes, that's that moment of, um, and this is sort of spiritual woo-woo talk, but uh, a moment of serendipity. I can imagine I'm walking down my busy street here and a little girl will bump into my leg, fall over and start crying. And maybe that's the only thing I needed to do that day because the little girl would have run into traffic otherwise. Maybe that's the only reason for this intersection of my life and all the other intersections. You're always kind of where you need to be as long as you're willing to accept that. And that acceptance has also been a tough thing for me. So why people have this negative view of going to rehab, of, of even quitting drinking or of going to a mental institution, I think is deeply rooted in the, the consumerism of, of culture as well. Mm -hmm. Because you have this, this avatar of um, strength, and we, we want to worship strength, but in reality, that's, that's almost right. a sickness in itself. It's, it's a paternalistic it's a cult, view. Yeah. It's a cult. It's a cultural sickness for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we can't accept that there's a weakness, whether it's a, a chemical imbalance or whether it's a, a mental imbalance that something just needs to be adjusted or shifted or, or maybe our own personal view, maybe because of the way 
we were raised or yeah. the things around us, uh, our cultural views and things along those lines. And so, yeah, there's, there's definitely some stigma there that needs to be broken down. So coming out of that, you, like you said, we, we mentioned you're, you're on a maintenance medicine and, and there, that's mm-hmm. awesome. I think that's fantastic. I was on a maintenance medicine for, for many, many years. There's zero shame in that. And I wish more people would recognize that there's zero shame in using a maintenance medicine, whatever you have to do to make yourself better, to get yourself to a point where you're happy with, with your existence, you know, and, and you're able to smile and move forward. Yeah. Or at least not having to ask your friends to take care of your kitchen knives. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. So for, for the person who's listening, who's heard your story and has heard our conversation up to this point, who isn't sure that, that going to AA or seeking mental health help is for them, what advice would you give? Two separate questions there. Uh, for mental health, getting a counselor is important and it's tragic. It's unfortunate but you got to get on that pretty quick because if someone else sees you acting crazy for whatever reason, they call the cops. You do not want to get the cops involved in any situation where you're not in your right mind under any circumstances. A counselor should be able to help you for, you know, less than a hundred bucks or so. And hopefully you're able to get the resources you need. There's, there's mental health crisis lines as well for, for suicide and such. I, I even called one on my birthday when I was drinking one time. And uh, But if you find yourself in, the, it's called suicidal ideation. And right. it's where like, for me, it was because I'm like, I, I'm looking at a laptop computer right now. And I would be saying things like I can pry it open and short a capacitor across my neck and blow my brains out. Like that's the kind of thing that I would think about. It's, uh, or I know like where every knife in my house is or because it was November, I know where the river is and I can go just have a, a long sit in it. And I know that long enough in cold water from being a raft guide and you just kind of don't care about things anymore. That's the type of thoughts that if they, if they're fleeting, if they run across you, then that's normal. But if you can't not think those thoughts, you got to ask for help. Right. And there's communities, uh, religious leaders of churches, really useful for that. It's a stigma to talk to your parents or your grandparents, but they might have something useful to, to say as well. Uh, my parents, particularly because of my upbringing, uh, anything invented after 1876, which includes Freud, was verboten. So that was a tough thing. That was a tough thing to, to tell them. But my, my siblings are much more supportive. Okay, good. For alcohol and drug addiction, If you ever find yourself doing something you don't want to do, if you, if you, I mean, that's, that's the thing. Take a good hard look at what you're doing on your weekends, on your your weeknights. And if you're coming home and your whole afternoon's been thinking about that first beer of the evening, 
If you are having more, so I, there's a crazy table I saw. It was a, it was a decile table of Americans and drinking. The bottom four deciles, so 40% of Americans do not drink at all. And granted, that includes like the children and the very elderly, but 40% of Americans don't drink at all. Still a large number. Yeah. 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 The vast majority of drinking is done by that top decile of drinkers. The, you know, because even like the second decile, the the top 20% drinkers are people who are like, oh, yes, I have three, four drinks a night. And if you're, I mean, even that's dodgy, but the higher decile is 17, 20 drinks a week. And that's where, uh, I mean, you say that. (laughs) I say that in AA meetings and people are like, ha, 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 amateurs. So if that's the kind of thing that touches you, or if you find yourself, you know, in trouble with the law, there are people who haven't been arrested that's something that someone said in an AA meeting once and got a big chuckle because if you've been arrested or gone to the hospital for something related to drugs or alcohol, you've got a problem. It might have been a one-time thing. Probably not. Right. Okay. Yeah. One of the things I've always said in, in, in different interviews with, you know, with those who have struggled with, you know, some form of addiction, whether it was drugs or alcohol or, or whatever, uh, and even talks about mental health. If you have your friends and family suggesting that you go get help, it's time to go get help. If you're wondering, if you're asking yourself, do I need help? It's time to go get help. You know, and, and both of those are things that we don't want to sleep on. You know, we want to, we want to go get that help, get that, get that, you know, buttoned up and taken care of. So, so I also thought it'd be nice to, so to just kind of reaffirm, how long have you been sober now? Uh, five years and a month, just shy. So yeah, awesome, pretty man. proud of that. Thanks. You should be. That's fantastic. I, uh, I'm always, I'm always proud to hear when, when people, uh, are fighting their addictions and, and they're working for their sobriety because it's, it's a work, it's an effort every single day. It's not something that just comes easily and naturally to most people because it's something the body has designed, has become to desire and they want. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and so to work against that, I, yeah, congratulations on that, man. That's awesome. And sobriety is no picnic either. I mean, it is significant work. The, the way AA works, you go through the 12 steps and anyone can look those up on the internet. The whole thing is, is wide open, but Part of it is going through your entire life and honestly looking at everything you've done, every relationship you have with people Mm -hmm. and fixing it. And that sounds scary. Don't let that put you off because it might be a while before you get to that. And you have to come to terms with a lot of things about yourself first, but that is like, it is not easy. It takes a long time. And no matter how long it takes, there is the ability to feel the full range of human emotions, to take the action of gratitude and to be free of self. Okay. Excellent. All right, Sam, I think we've gotten to a point in the show now where I'd like to ask you two questions that I ask every guest who's ever been on focused on forward. So, and these two questions are pretty similar in nature, but uh, here we go. Question one. 
looking back over the entirety of your experience, what's the single greatest lesson that you've learned? The single, when I quit drinking, I had a moment. I felt like I had the entire world wrapped up like a, uh, an armature, um, a gyroscope kind of looking thing, a bunch of coils and every single opinion, every single fact that I was aware of was another iron band around this like rubber band ball. It was, it was dark, it was, it was solid. I carried it around me and it weighed, it weighed as much as the sun. It was a black hole into which all the emotions fell. And I realized that what I was doing with that was I was trapping what I was missing. And this isn't by any means true for everyone, but I, I was missing a spiritual experience, which for me was some some power higher than myself. That could be bears, it could be a family, it could be whatever, but I had taken away a part of me. And the lesson I learned was that I can tear through that, I can let go. I can let go of every single thing that I think I know and trade it in and I can leap, I can jump forward and I can, I can grow from this. And that took a long time, it took a lot of work in sobriety. I mean, this didn't happen until I was a year, year and a half sober before I started feeling this way. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's a good lesson. I like it. All right. Our, uh, our second question, pretty similar in nature goes like this, looking back over the entirety of your experience, what was the single greatest piece of advice that you have been given? changes all the time the uh you know what what ha one of the other parts of the AA program is making a inventory of your character defects and being willing to let go of them and I didn't realize for a long time how strong my resentment was. And one can probably tell from this story that there's ample opportunity and there's still resentment in that against my parents, against, you know, just little, little amoebas wanting to hang out in the pool and just wanting to eat my eyeballs. There's, there's so much that I could be resentful for in the big book of AA, they say resentment is the number one offender. It's the one that will kill you. It's the one that's going to take you out. And that I can't hang on to it. If I hang on to it, it'll poison me. Recognizing that, I mean, just that line, resentment is the number one offender, is something that has sat with me for the last year and really given me a push to get to where I am today because I've needed to do growth over the last year, year and a half as well. Okay, excellent. All right, so typically at this point, Sam, we, we talk about you know how people can reach out to find you and, and more information, but that's not the point of this, keeping this anonymous. Is there something, yeah. is there a resource though that you would recommend people reach out to if they're, if they're struggling? I want to touch on that real fast. The reason for the anonymity 
in AA, and it's not true of, of a lot of recovery programs, but is so that no one becomes a prophet of it or a spokesperson of it. And, and I can maintain, because I might relapse tonight. And then the, all this beautiful message that I've been saying, one could say, oh, well, he doesn't know, you know, his ass from a hole in the ground. So that is the purpose of that. And it's, um, when asked, I will gladly say to people on the street, I'm an AA, here's my personal phone number, give me a call. If you are feeling suicidal, call the National Suicide Hotline. I'm not sure the number for it, but I think that we got a three-digit number for it now or something shorter. There's mental health lines all over for whatever help you can get. And for recovery, there is almost certainly someone in recovery closer to you than you can imagine. There are meetings everywhere for everything. I, uh, I went to my hometown for Christmas and I went to a meeting and the meeting hall is in a former church right across from the middle school I went to, right across the street. And I sit there and it's uh, a whole bunch of people who grew up there and now lived in the town I live, the city I live in. It's so close. And all you got to do is, is look for it. Uh, yeah, I, I've gotten good results out of AA. I know it's not for everyone. Find something that works for you. If it doesn't work for you, try something different. All but right. Very good. Don't, don't drink if you don't want to. Don't use if you don't want to. Okay. Very good. I love the advice. And we'll, we'll put notes in the, in the bottom of the show notes here for a suicide hotline, how to get a, how to get a hold of uh, AA well, and even NA um, over the web. Forward. If people are looking for more information on, on you can those, reach those good places for people to start. F-O-F. Sam, thank you so much for being Facebook willing to come on focus on forward today and share your story or through, you know, my message has always been, if we can only help just one person we look each forward interview. to hearing each and every uh, one I think of we'll your our job and, I, and i'm told i'm sure that there so are until then more safe, than one person who could identify with your another. story as you stay focused. Uh, several different aspects of it even and uh if we can help them and help them see that they're not the only ones that they're not alone then we've done our job here today absolutely no no one is alone no one is alone ever absolutely All right, guys, thank you for listening to Focused on Forward today. That's going to be all. Have a good one.